Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by To Sleep in a Sea of Stars by Christopher Paolini. To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, the new epic novel from number one New York Times bestselling author of Aragon, Christopher Paolini, is now available in paperback. Kira Navarez dreamed of life on new worlds. Now she's awakened a nightmare. During a routine survey mission on an uncolonized planet, Kira finds an alien relic. At first, she's delighted, but elation turns to terror when the ancient dust around her begins to move. And while Kira faces her own horrors, Earth and its colonies stand upon the brink of annihilation. Kira might be humanity's greatest and final hope. Again, that's To Sleep in a Sea of Stars by Christopher Paolini, now in paperback, available wherever books are sold. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 115, and we are recording on October 29th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Sharifa Williams, and we're coming to you from Book Riot and our own Halloween enjoyment. (laughs) (laughs) And today is going to be our book club episode. Yes. I'm very excited. Yes, I'm so excited. I We picked Ray Bear by Jordan Ifwako, thanks to some feedback from y'all and our own uh, thoughts. And I don't think we could have picked a better book, honestly. I don't either. It was so epic. And there's so much to dig into with this story. And I am going to do my best to keep myself from babbling about it because... <laughs> My mind went in 20,000 different places when I was writing up my notes for this episode. So we'll see. Yeah, I have like (laughs) some top line notes. And then I think I literally put this agenda, just like general enthusiastic, you know, gushing. (laughs) What's next on my list. So we'll try to we'll try to be thoughtful as well as gushy. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's an experiment. It is for the ride. (laughs) It is. That's right. So by the time everybody is listening, their Halloweens will be over. But let's just pretend, Sharifa, we were talking about Halloween earlier. Are you a fan? I love Halloween. And I sort of my partner kept asking what I wanted to do this Halloween because it's like my holiday. Mm. But I think because we're still sort of, you know, we are, well, not still sort of, we are very much in a pandemic. Yeah. I'm like, maybe we'll like go to the outdoor bar and freeze for a while and right. put on like some random costumes because I always have costumes lying around. Yes. But it's it's still a weird uh, Halloween year for me, but I'm going to try to make it as festive as possible. And it sounds like you too are going to do some festive stuff. Yeah, the biggest festivities happened last weekend. My friend came over for our annual Hocus Pocus rewatch and pumpkin pie and we ate cheese and popcorn and pie and just had a delight. And then we actually we decided to turn it into a double feature with Nightmare Before Christmas, which I highly recommend. Perfect. 
1993 was like a good year for silly, spooky, fun movies, it turns out. Yeah, I'm ready for more of that. Bring it on. Bring on the uh, 90s vibes for Halloween. Well, before we start talking about our one big news story and then our book club discussion i'm going to tell you about today's sponsor which is oni press bringing us upgrade soul the collector's edition by ezra clayton daniels for their 45th anniversary hank and molly nonar decided to go and to undergo an experimental rejuvenation procedure but their hopes for youth are dashed when the couple is faced with the results mutated yet intellectually and physically superior duplicates of themselves. Can the original Hank and Molly coexist in the same world as their clones? Award-winning creator Ezra Clayton Daniels' trailblazing science fiction graphic novel returns in the Upgrade Soul Collector's Edition featuring a new essay and design files from Ezra, as well as a foreword by Darren Aronofsky and afterward by Karama Horn. So Upgrade Soul was named a best book by Publishers Weekly, Pace Magazine, Library Journal, Vulture, Tor.com, Amazon, and Comics Beat when it originally released in 2018. This is a new collector's edition in hardcover, and Upgrade Soul is a surreal exploration of identity and what shapes us. Is it the capability of our minds or the physicality of our bodies? Is a newer, better version of yourself still you? So if that sounds like something you're looking for, check out Upgrade Soul Collector's Edition, again by Ezra Clayton Daniels and brought to us by Oni Press. Okay, you have a news story that you wanted to talk about for various reasons, and I'm also really excited to talk (laughs) about it as well. Yeah, so the big news, we're only doing one news story because this is a book club episode, but it felt remiss for us not to announce Mm -hmm. that Dune Part 2 has been confirmed. IGN reported on it, and uh, Matt Kim is the reporter, and it has officially finally been greenlit, which they waited to do until after Dune Part 1 dropped. And, like, I I don't think I was alone in not realizing that Dune Part 1 was Dune Part 1 for the longest time. Me neither. No. (laughs) So they kind of buried that lead uh, in the lead up to that movie. But we are going to get the second installment officially. So we'll see what that looks like. Sharifa, did you see it? Yeah, I I watched it last weekend and I was also, <laughs> I was sitting on the couch at the end and it was very late at night because we started it late. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> Part, what? what? <laughs> that sounds about right. I was so shocked. I have a lot of feelings about it. I went, we went to the drive-in movie theater, which is my favorite thing uh, that the pandemic has so brought fun. back is drive-ins. And my partner has not read Dune. I think he saw the old, you know, David Lynch movie when he was a kid, but he otherwise has no context. And at the end, I was like, so what did you think? And he was like, well, (laughs) I mostly followed it, I think. Like, it was very, he he was very unsure about it. Um, So this is when I tell you that we actually have a new podcast that we just have launched called Adaptation Nation. And I will be on Adaptation Nation talking with 
Jeff and Amanda about Dune. So I, I cannot give you my fullest review here. <laughs> but you'll just have to tune in. But you'll hear more about Adaptation Nation later in the show. But yeah, it's a it's an experience, I guess, is my my two word, three word review. <laughs> Lots of Zendaya looking over her shoulder. Yeah. Interesting. Jeez. This is basically uh-huh. <laughs> entire oh. role. But the thing about this too is that I don't think I realized of course I didn't realize this because I didn't know Doom Part Two was happening but also i saw the date and i was like 2023 (laughs) it's scheduled to premiere october 20th 2023 like that feels like a million years from now this is what happens when you don't plan on a sequel for sure because then you can't film them at the same time which is what normal like that's how the lord of the rings was done that's how a lot of movies that have a planned sequel will do it and it's fascinating to i i wish i knew the full story of why they did it this way yeah to be in that planning room like yeah Yeah. It does seem like they insinuate in this piece that, like, there was some uncertainty. I don't know where the uncertainty necessarily came from about whether there would be an audience for this sort of movie because it is so grand of scope and scale. But Mm. it's also very, like, classic sci-fi. But I I guess in my head, I, I always thought that Dune was, like, a big, iconic, sci-fi classic that lots of people knew about and would be interested in seeing. All of those things are true. Also, I don't think it's any... I mean, people are going to at me about this. I don't think it's any bigger in scope, to be perfectly honest, than like Star Wars. And they've made a million movies out of Star Wars. Come on. Or like a space. I mean, there's so many sci-fi films out there that are huge. And like, I just don't know why this would be any different. It has a baked in audience. They know the book is is like a I mean, it was literally the first book to ever win the Nebula Award. Like it's it is a fixture for better or for worse, depending on (laughs) which part of Dune we're talking about. About, which they're which again well I have a lot of feelings about that we'll get into <laughs> yeah. an adaptation nation but yeah it's a it's a fixture I, I I genuinely wonder if they were not like can he earn back the money we spent making this in the box office that's when we'll decide yeah. to do number two like that is my guess is that it's an economic decision rather than any actual confusion about like whether or not people would be interested but I could yeah. be wrong who knows I think so. This, obviously, that a lot of money went into this movie, yeah. so oh my I can absolutely see that being the case. <laughs> all the money, all the money went into it. <laughs> well, we'll we'll get back to you in 2023 on what to yeah. do. I guess. <laughs> oh Lord. Oh, well, so Ray Bear, I'm so excited to talk about Ray Bear. But before we actually, we never remember to do this at the top. Should we give like a non-spoiler summary for people who didn't read it yet? That is a very good idea. Do you want to go ahead and give it or do you want me to? Do you want to try? It's a hard book to summarize. I was actually like trying to do this in the shower this morning because I kind of expected that I might have to. (laughs) So I'm going to try to do it without spoilers, which is going to be interesting. Uh, But basically, this story is not at all what I thought it was going to be. It is the story of Tarisai or Tar who grows up in Bikina House, isolated from everybody her own age. She has no friends. She has 
no specific kind of family to speak of. All she knows is a woman named the lady who she sees as her mother, and she has some staff about the house, and she has tutors, and nobody wants to touch her because she has a gift of being able to read people's memories. So she's able to plumb their memories. She can do this whether she touches an object or whether she touches a person. And so people fear her touch. And at the top of the story, she discovers something about herself and her own history And her training is all in preparation for her to go to the capital, to the children's palace, and to train to see if she can become one of the council members for the next emperor, Dio. And so Tar ends up in the capital. She goes through these tests. She eventually makes it as part of the council and then begins the journey of her trying not to live up to the fate the lady set for her, which is one of violence and one that goes against her nature. Also discovering the lady's story, her own story and truths and finding family. So it's a very big sweeping story that starts from Tar's early childhood and goes into her late teens and takes us across this really epic world, this Mm. continent, and introduces us to many characters with many stories. And it's just Altogether, an amazing debut, which I can't believe this is a debut, but it is. I I keep forgetting (laughs) that part. I keep forgetting that part. That was really good. That was a really good summary. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I was like, I don't want to say anything I shouldn't say, but I think that is as basic as I can make it. Yeah. And the overall experience of reading this book is so interesting because of that epicness and that time scope that you talked about. Like, I don't remember the last time I read a book quite like this, where you go from the early childhood to the late teens with Mm -hmm. a character. And then also that character travels so much like as a person, but then also literally travels through this realm. So you just get so much you inhabit so many different moments with Tar. It's it's really cool. Yeah, when I started reading it, I fully expected to stay in the children's palace with Tarasai and you know see her childhood play out. Yeah. And because I knew that this there was going to be a sequel, so I figured, you know, the sequel would cover maybe her teens. Mm. In the way that a lot of these books where we have a sort of schooling system, mm-hmm. like we would learn about all of the numerous tests she has to take and then it would land somewhere at her being accepted as part of the council. But by the time we get to part two, we see that that is not the case, that she has already grown up. I think in part two, she's 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of excited. I was like, wow, now we get so much more of the development of 
you know, what happens beyond the children's palace and how she's going to get out of this really terrible ordeal that yeah. the ladies put her into. And I agree, like, the amount of journeying we do as readers with Tara Sai, like, the internal journeying as well as, like, just traveling this giant continent and mm -hmm. being introduced to all these different cultures is really exceptional. Yeah, and it's... Certainly, like, it's pitched as a West African-inspired fantasy, which it absolutely is. But this is not just one culture on the page. The way that the realm is set up is that I think there are, like, is it seven? There, are, I forget the exact number. But there are a bunch of different realms all governed by this emperor. And then one that is not, is just on the outskirts. And it's it's complicated why that is. But Tar goes to a lot of these different places and they all have their own cultures and ethnicities and there are different religious interpretations of the overall religion of the empire. And there are oral traditions for these different, you know, realms. And it, it's just it's not like a monolithic like here is one giant land all ruled by the same person and everything's the same. Like, no, there's so many different influences at play here, which I also really loved. Yeah, the world building was really interesting. I thought that Jordan did such an amazing job with describing. And I feel like whenever we come into these worlds, especially like even when you get a world where you're inhabiting one space and one culture and they all have a unifying belief like that's that's hard enough yeah. as it is. But when you incorporate many different types of cultures and you have to do that world building like I could I don't know specifically what each of these cultures was inspired by, but you could sort of figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there were so many additional elements that made it very much fantasy cultures that were spun from, you know, the author's imagination. And it was like down to the to the wardrobe, yes. to the way people dressed, to the food they ate, to the way they spoke even. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was really well done. And I was completely pulled in by the descriptions of everything, like the the wax fabric yes. that um, they wore in the empire. I was trying to imagine it in my head and I was like, wow, this is all very stunning. And, yes. and I'm getting a real clear sense of what this world is about and what it looks like. And I feel like I can really imagine these different places we're traveling to, which is it's not an easy feat. No, no, especially for a debut to like tackle such a huge world building project, like you said, that's incredibly impressive. And then to pull it off, like to actually pull it off well mm -hmm. is even more impressive. I think also it felt a little bit like like it was interesting to me that there's, you know, there's fantasy, right? Like you you mentioned Tar has this uh power, they call it a hollow in the yes. book where she can touch people or things or anything really and get a sense of where that object or person has been and what they've experienced. 
And there are others in the book who have their own special talents and hallows. And there are these lodestones that they use to like, it's also it's almost science fiction-y. Like they dematerialize and then rematerialize at the next lodestone. And like you can like literally lose limbs if you do it too often in a row. And that plays a part <laughs> in the story. So that there are these like big, fascinating, speculative elements, but I I kind of kept forgetting about them, not in a bad way, but just because the details and the characters and what the characters were wrestling with were not necessarily like reliant on those fantasy elements. I mean, the fantasy elements play a role in the story, but they're not the biggest role, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I think that a lot of the sort of interpersonal strife and the, you know, power struggles and the plotting weren't necessarily reliant on the Hallows. It was more about, you know, a lot of this story was about finding purpose and, you know, understanding your own values and being able to separate those values from what's commanded down to you. There was Mm -hmm. so much of the story that was about oppression and patriarchy (laughs) and so many things that were, you know, beyond the scope of magic, I guess, or didn't necessarily, they were big enough that yeah, you could sort of forget about the hallows for a second and just think, well, you know, Tar can't necessarily get out of this situation. Like, there's a lot of stuff she has to sort out for herself intellectually mm-hmm. and philosophically. And, you know, her hallow is a an exceptional thing about her and it does get her to places and help her solve things. But the biggest part of the struggle is just like, first of all, not seeing herself as a monster. Yeah. And secondly, like kind of shaking off the uh, the sort of chains of empire mm-hmm. because she's grown mm-hmm. up in this place that has taught her how to think and who to place her trust and love in. And she ultimately has to figure that stuff out by herself. She kind of has to you know, forget about what she's been taught and think for herself. And that's a big part of it that's separate from the magical element. Yeah. And magic definitely doesn't solve everything in this story. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the Hallows were fascinating. Yeah. Super (laughs) cool. Not to to downplay how cool they are at all. Well, let's uh, take a moment to talk about our next sponsor um, and then maybe dig into some spoilery stuff. Yes. So our next sponsor is, happens to be, our new podcast, Adaptation Nation, where we read it, we watch it, we talk about it. So Book Riot is taking on your favorite literary adaptations, including new releases, old favorites, underrated gems, and interesting messes. We'll dive into how the books and their adaptations came to be, maybe publication and production backstories, casting what-ifs, critical reception, and also to answer the ever-burning question, was the book actually better than the movie or show, and does that question even matter? So as I said earlier, up first, uh, we're going to be talking about Dune. It'll be Jeff, who's the co-host of Book Riot, Amanda, who is my co-host on Get Booked, and me. And you can subscribe on your podcatcher of choice starting November 1. So by the time you hear this, 
that episode will be up. So you can go right Yay. to listening to it. Hooray. <laughs> and maybe one day we'll be talking about the Ray Bearer adaptation yes. on Adaptation oh. Nation. <laughs> I look forward to that. Yes, yes. That doesn't mean that we won't occasionally do our own adaptation reviews here, though. Does We might still do some things. Absolutely. Okay, so can we talk about this one thing I'm like a little bit obsessed with, which is yes. this trope that I have now seen in a few different books, and there's probably more out there that I'm not thinking of at the moment, of sacrificing children as part of a deal to protect a region or empire or realm. Because when I got to this point in Raybearer where Tarisai, like, sort of begins to understand or tell us about how 300 children every year are sent into this, like, underworld, and most of them don't come back, and they're sent to appease these demons who otherwise would be wreaking havoc on the regular across the realms. And this deal was made, like, generations ago by the first emperor, and it used to be that the children were born all over the realm, and you would know them by these tattoos that they have, uh, that they're born with, these markings. But it for the last while, they've all been born in Songland, which is this outlying country that is not actually part of the realm. And there's like all these complicated politics around it and also some supernatural, you know, Michigas going on there. But but when I read that, I was like, oh, man, because it reminded me of the Acacia series by David Anthony Durham, which has a similar sacrifice of children. And then Queen of the Tearling by Erica Johansson, which came Mm -hmm. out, I want to say, in like the mid aughts and was huge for a while. And that has children being sent as like a tithe to this other, you know, to protect the realm from from strife and and annihilation or whatever. And I'm just like, that is, what is it about that plot device that is so like, why, why that plot device? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I feel like I'm not reading enough (laughs) children being sacrificed stories, but obviously... Obviously, there is a this is something that happens a lot in fantasy books. And I'm wondering if it's like vaguely related to, oh, goodness, I'm trying to remember the name of it's the children's something and it happened in the medieval times. Oh, the children's crusade? Yes, the Children's Crusade with the Crusades, of course. Yeah. That's the word I'm missing. I'm wondering if that's like some oh. strange basis for it. <laughs> but I find it really, really interesting that I guess when you think about kids, like they are the most vulnerable of yeah. vulnerable. And who couldn't, who wouldn't have their heart rent out by the idea of children sacrifices, much less 300. That's like, right? That's like a school. You're sending an entire school into Every this year. terrible underworld. Every, Every year. year. How do they even? I mean, how? Right. How, how do they, they have that? enough babies for that? Like, especially <laughs> yeah. they're all coming from the same place. I was like, I don't understand the logistics of this. But also, I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, what does it do as a plot device? And it basically sets up the people who are demanding the sacrifice as 100% evil, right? There's no... There's no ifs, ands, or buts about how evil somebody who would demand the sacrifice of children for labor or, you know, supernatural whatever. Like, that's that's just an evil 
an evil thing. And yeah. it establishes the rulers who agree to this bargain as corrupt from the jump. Like, you can't, I, I don't think there's many readers who would be like, that's fine. <laughs> like, I understand yeah. <laughs> why. That's cool. Like, yeah, I would support, I would vote for that guy who agreed to this. Like, it, and it makes everybody complicit in maintaining that status quo in this really uncomfortable way. So I think it sets up like a lot of internal tension from the jump, which is probably why it shows up in all of these different places. Because then it's like, well, how do you balance the lives of a very specific number of extremely vulnerable humans versus potential widespread warfare? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it is really interesting that it really illustrates how deep the belief and faith in this rulership in the Raybeer mm. is that it's just sort of it is being complicit. It's sort of accepted yeah. among people, except people of Songland who sort right. of just have to grin and bear it. And they do, which is also horrifying. Yeah. It just sets it up for us to realize how deeply these people have faith in the Ray Bear, that they're willing to do this, that they're willing to not fight back against these kids who, granted, are distant and are almost, you know, it's purposefully set aside on the outskirts. Yeah. Geographically, to just be like, well, it is what it is. And <laughs> it's for the Ray Bearer says it's best for all of us. So let's just, you know, sing his praises mm. and let things be and continue to have this ritual of the signing so that we can send these babies into the pit of the yeah. underworld. <laughs> oh, it's very, very creepy. But yeah, I think it kind of points to one of the, like that sort of devotion points to another aspect of the story I found interesting and, you know, personally horrifying, which is the council, <laughs> the council mm. dynamics and this idea of council sickness and just how the council functions alongside the ray bearer. So the council is... A big part of the story in that in order to be on the council, you have to love the Ray, the, the Ray Bearer or the future Ray Bearer. Mm -hmm. And you are tied by, you know, your mind. Your mind is tied to other members of the council. Your mind is tied to the Ray Bearer. The Ray Bearer's immunities come from the council members. There's so much like they need each other. And mm -hmm. that need is translated into this council sickness the council members get when they're separated from each other. And I am a, a type five on the Enneagram and the <laughs> idea of somebody being up in your mind, up in your business, up in your personal space all the time, like gives me hives. It's horrifying <laughs> to me. But <laughs> it was such a big part of this story, especially in the later, like in part mm -hmm. two, when Tar is on the council. And for her, it's a beautiful thing. It's like right. she's never like nobody has ever wanted to touch her and be close to her uh, physically or emotionally. And she's found this family in her council. And she, 
you know, has particularly strong friendships with a handful of them, but the whole of the council is like, this is her thing. And she she's like ride or die for them right. in all ways. Right. And I don't know. I found it so interesting. What did you think? Well, I appreciate that. I think if Waco presents it as a mixed blessing, right? Because it's like you said, Tar, she was isolated growing up. She's never had unconditional love and acceptance from anyone. Mm-hmm. And now she is perpetually in communication and like existence with 11 people right so like she's never alone Uh, she can literally never be alone again which yeah like you said is like very good for her in a lot of ways even though it also then extremely complicates her like you know this compulsion that has been placed on her but also yeah I think the council sickness and the way that we see both the older council members and the younger council members being like, well, we're not supposed to have like relationships with specific other council members, but everybody does. And like the way they're navigating this, like we're all supposed to be one happy family, but obviously some people are going to connect more than others or have needs that need to be fulfilled. And then there's the council sickness and it's like, it's, it's magically enforced codependency. And I really appreciate that that is not shown to be like the best thing ever. Like it's great. Yeah. Like no, it's not great. Actually, it's it's not great. Like it it has benefits, but it also has these enormous issues and drawbacks. And I think again that just like speaks to the nuance of the way that if Wigo has put these characters together, like we have different, you know, sexual identities on the page. We have different gender identities. We have different ethnic and cultural and racial identities. Like there's all, there's so much nuance in the way that these characters are relating to each other and like how they feel about being on the council, what they hope to accomplish. It's so rich in, in character dynamics in a way that is just, I think really cool because it it really does draw you in and like I was so invested in what was going on I was like so stressed out for these characters (laughs) and like so nervous about what was going to happen in this book also also to get super spoilery I did not see it coming, the big reveal. I like, t- shall we say what the big reveal yeah, is? I guess at this point ahead. in the show, if you're still listening, you probably have read it. The fact that Terasai is like also a ray bearer and could be empress, I like, and then the whole history of like how there used to be an emperor and an empress to balance each other out. And like, I did not, I 100% did not see that coming. Did you see it on the on its way? I did. <laughs> <laughs> remember when I realized it I had a feeling when they started talking about the only female ray bearer mm. they'd had in their history and when Tarasai got that I believe it was a drum yes I was like hmm and then when <laughs> they were testing the mask when Tar and Dio were testing the mask and she tried to use the word to call it because Dio right. was certain like something would happen. I was like, hmm, I feel like <laughs> something's just missing, but I think that 
there is something happening here. And then I was thinking about this this morning, like, oh, I wonder, like, if they made it anywhere clear that she would have the potential to be the Ray Bear. And then I saw, like, right, it's almost like a spoiler, the cover itself, mm. because oh, it's true. I, had, <laughs> I didn't think anything of it at first. And then I was like... Wait a second, like, she's basically a, she's bearing that ray right, in the cover. The cover. <laughs> no, <laughs> looking back, I'm like, how, it was so clear from the kid jump. But I just didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't get there on my own. I had to be, like, told. I had to be told. <laughs> that is amazing, though. I feel like it. there were so many great revelations in yeah. the story. Some of them were great, and some of them were, like, Oh, this complicates how I feel. And one yes. particular, like in relation to the characters being such onions, the lady mm-hmm. was so much to unravel. Yes. I had so many complicated feelings about the lady by the end of this book. There are some things she does that are like just unforgivable. Yeah. Like starting with how Taurus Eye is brought into the world mm-hmm. and what she does to Melu. Yeah. yeah. The way she treats people is just mm-hmm. heinous. And then yeah. you realize that she used to be this is another spoilery thing. She used to be this good person with good intentions and she wanted to share power and then when that opportunity was taken away from her when everything she loved and hoped for was taken away from her it just like turned her into this absolute villain Mm -hmm. even though she still like in her mind she was a loving mother to Taurus I, mm. and she was all she was doing everything for the Empire and for Tar, and she, in her mind, had the best intentions still and could not see past the things she was asking of people and forcing people to do to see yeah. that she had turned into this villain. Yeah. Like up until her she was dead and she still yeah. <laughs> this. Like, what? <laughs> Yeah, it's it that whole conversation where they talk about Tar's childhood and she was like, I was there all the time. Like I was I was always thinking about you. But the way that she is thinking about Tar is just literally as an extension of herself. Like all she wants is to use her child to bring about her dreams, which I think is like a very real parenting phenomenon like a parenting Mm -hmm. pitfall and yeah her complete obliviousness to the fact that like that's not okay that like tar is her own person and deserves to decide what happens next to her and like what she does and that she's just like no this is correct like i am (laughs) correct you're like oh man wow like what a warped mind and you know i mean we love a female, a complicated female villain, right? Like, we love we them. We do. And this was a really complicated and uncomfortable one. <laughs> yeah. I, I I definitely did not like the lady no, at no. the end of the no. story, but I was just like, I still thought she was a 
a as powerful a character, a fictional character, as she was a powerful force to be reckoned with mm. in this world. Yeah. Like the way she was described and how she was sort of this larger than life figure and nobody could deny the effect she had on people when she walked into a mm. room. And mm-hmm. then the fact that Tar is like her spitting image yeah. kind of like y- you sort of realize that Tar has the potential to be as powerful and as effective in moving people as the lady but in a much more you know positive way <laughs> we can only hope we can only hope <laughs> we can well, only I think hope. that really speaks to the ending right so at the ending Tar has, like, gone through all of these lodestones. She's, like, basically a ghost of herself. And she's charging in to interrupt the ceremony of the signing and to prevent the children who are going to be born to be sacrificed from all being born in Songland again. And, like, to achieve that, she has to literally offer herself and then anybody else she can convince to become part of her council up to go into the underworld and, like, try to come back out. And, like, what a sacrifice, right? Like, what what a profound choice. That was a big one. I, yeah. I, that is something I definitely didn't see coming. I was curious about how she would resolve this. I had yeah. every bit of faith there is a reason that she was chosen to be the justice. She has mm. a good grasp on critical thinking yes, and being able yes. to find her way out of all sorts of terrible problems. The lodestone thing made me think, is she just going to like be a spirit and yes. and uh, have to go to the underworld dead or something right. and work from within? But that was a really interesting resolution. And also, it's a, uh, a terrifying prospect. There's yeah. so much... There's so much that could happen in the second book, and I think mm-hmm. that was a really great cliffhanger and also a really great setup for the next book because it's apparent that there is some time between when she's going to be expected to enter the underworld. She has these tasks she has to do. She has mm-hmm. to get people on board with her as a ray bearer, which yeah. is like, wow. <laughs> NBD, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, how is the old council going to take it? Because we yeah. don't really hear, like, what their reaction is to the fact that their ray bearer is gone. Mm-hmm. And and now they they sort of have to, as part of the Empire, get on board with this new idea of you know, a woman being a ray bearer and Mm -hmm. how, what's going, how is Tar going to gather people around her? And then what's going to happen in the underworld? Like she's going to get training from this child to to traverse the underworld. Yeah, it's wild. It's really wild. I loved, I, I like finished it and I was like, oh dang, like I definitely need to read the next one. Yeah, and it's already out, so yes. that's, Redemptor. that's a good one. Yes, Redemptor came out um, this past summer, so we don't have too long to wait for it. And I'm really, like, curious about if we're going to get to hear more of 
like Kira's story in Songland because she was really interested in going there. And I want to know more about Songland, too. Yes. Yes. Are there any other um, things you anticipate or characters you can't wait to follow in the next story? I'm really curious how this like double council situation is going to work because yeah, Tar is connected to Dio and the others, but then she has to make her own council. So like, what is how does that work? Like council connection wise, and then yeah, I also am super curious about POV because this whole first book was all from Tar's perspective, right? Like we don't get mm-hmm. anybody else's point of view, but it does seem like there are all of these burgeoning story threads that could take us into other characters' experiences, and but I don't know, like I don't know, maybe. Maybe it will just be, maybe there's enough there, uh, which I can believe from how this book went. You know, like, even though I would love to have seen other POVs, I didn't feel like the story suffered from not having them. So it'll be interesting to see how, yeah, how if we go follows this up, what is it like in the underworld? Like, what... What is going to (laughs) happen? I have a feeling we're not going to be able to see, and I could be wrong. I literally have not looked at any sort of description of the second book or any reviews Mm -hmm. or anything, but I really want to know what the underworld is going to be like, but I have a sneaking suspicion that we're not going to get that until the third book. I could be 100% wrong. I also don't know if this is a duology or a trilogy. I didn't want to spoil anything for myself. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did the same thing. I avoided knowing as much as possible because I didn't want to spoil anything. So, well, if you know something and you want to tell us, I mean, not spoilers, (laughs) but like, you know, uh, feel free to email us, sffyeah at bookriot.com. Is that it? Or should we wrap up? Is that where we're uh, I think that's I think that's it. I feel like we could talk for like 40 more minutes, honestly. This is the problem. (laughs) (laughs) We chose an epic book. This just we just have to accept that we're not going to be able to write a whole essay on it. (laughs) That's just it. But I loved it. It was so good. I'm so glad we chose that book. Yeah, me too. Me too. I am a big fan. Well, all right. That was our book club episode. Thank you to everyone who read along with us. And we hope that you enjoyed it. And we would love to hear your thoughts about Ray Bear. Uh, again, you can send those via email, sffyeahatbookride.com. Thanks also to our excellent sound editor for making us sound great each and every episode. For more book recommendations, you can go to bookriot.com. You can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. And if you would like to review us on Apple Podcasts, that helps other people to find the show. We super appreciate it. So thanks in advance for that. And in between shows, you can find us online. Trifa, where are you? I'm on Instagram at Williams. That's S-Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And I am on Instagram as I am Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>